Broadcasting live from the North Fulton Business Radio X studio, it's time for To Your Health with Dr. Jim Morrow. To Your Health is brought to you by Morrow Family Medicine, an award-winning primary care practice, which brings the care back to healthcare. Hello, welcome to episode 33 of To Your Health with Dr. Jim Morrow. I am Jim Morrow. We appreciate you tuning in and listening to this version of our podcast. I am with Mara Family Medicine. We have offices in Cumming in Milton, Georgia, where we're seeing patients both live and in the office and also on telemedicine during this pandemic time that we're living in. At Mara Family Medicine, we do utilize the state-of-the-art technology we have access to, along with what we think is old-fashioned care, to bring you the best care possible and make you feel both cared for and appreciated. We realize that you have many choices as to where to receive your care, and we do appreciate it when that choice is Mara Family Medicine. So we are social distancing still. I'm in my office in Cumming, and John Ray, my producer, is in his home studio. We're social distancing, but I do think that we're not too far from being able to reconvene in our, our home studio at the Renaissance Bank in Alpharetta, Georgia. I'm hoping that's the case. Hey, John, how are you, man? I'm good. How are you? I'm good. I'm good. good. Excited about today. This is going to be a great episode, and I'm really excited to get some facts and some science out to people because there's a sincere lack of both yep. in, in the world about uh, coronavirus. So I'm excited about that. Yep. I've been doing a coronavirus update at the start of each of our episodes recently, but today we're going to talk about the virus and this pandemic for the entire episode. I'm very happy to have with us today a special guest. We don't do a lot of guests because not a lot of people want to talk to me probably, but I'm excited to have a guest and that is Dr. Manny Rodriguez. Dr. Rodriguez is an infectious disease specialist practicing in the North Atlanta metro area, specifically Roswell, Alpharetta, Cumming, Georgia. He's with infectious disease specialists of Georgia. Uh, He's a colleague of mine who probably wishes I would lose a cell phone because especially right now, because I'm texting or calling way too often, I'm sure, about things I've not had a chance to learn on one of the probably six or seven podcasts about the virus that I'm trying to keep up with. So Manny, how are you? Welcome. Thanks for being with us. Thanks, Jim. I'm doing great. Thanks for having me. And you're in your office, I think. You said you were getting ready to head over to the hospital. So we're going to make short work of this and let you get on with your day. Um, We were talking a little bit before we got started about the volume of COVID-19 patients in our area, North Atlanta, North Georgia. Um, Tell me what you're seeing at the hospital right now. Well, as a general statement, you know, overall, the hospitals I round at at the different uh, places seems to be steady, if not uh, come down quite a bit compared to our initial uh, surge, if you will. I'm still seeing occasional patients coming in. Um, You probably all heard about the issues in Gainesville with their poultry plants um, and some of the surge they've had up there. But down here in our counties, um, we've actually been spared quite a bit. And I think it has to do with our, our ability to be spread out a little bit more um, and less population density overall. So I think overall, we've been in pretty good shape down here. So in the chicken processing plants in, in Hall County, uh, I think it's pretty, pretty much a good assumption that you're working in very close proximity in a, a place like that. Tell me a little bit about what exactly happened up there. So um, it's, they're still investigating exactly how the spread went out because they actually think that there was more spread within folks outside of the plants than in the plants. 
Um, a lot of the workers um, have don't have the best of living conditions, and so they're in close quarters when they're outside the poultry plant. And so one person getting ill from this disease comes in and, and can then spread it very quickly. And once they're in there, although they're doing some, my, my understanding at least is they are doing a better, better job as far as screening. You know, initially um, it was difficult to to get a hold of who was getting sick and where and when. Yeah, and the main screening, if you go to uh, some physician's offices and uh, my wife went to get her nails done, they're screening her for temperature and stuff. But such a huge percentage of people are not getting a fever with this virus. Uh, I, I understand having a fever being a, a non-starter, but not having a fever still leaves an awful lot of people out there that might have this virus that can still expose folks. Yes, is that, I mean, that's very true, Jim. Um, and we do know the issues with asymptomatic carriers is a problem. The, I guess the silver lining is that we believe that those carriers in general probably don't spread the virus as much as people who are symptomatic, those who are having fever, cough, et cetera. Um, so the, although the risk is not zero, certainly, um, it's a little bit less. You know, as we as we kind of talked before um, the podcast started, you know, it's an, we do have to understand that we cannot open up and expect no nobody to get sick. We have to have an understanding that there is going to be mitigation um, or at att- attempt at mitigation, mitigating the amount of people that are sick um, with the hope that overall we have a better, stronger economy and at the same time um, are sparing the folks who are, sick, who, are, who are most vulnerable for this disease. You know, I read about the Spanish flu epidemic, which I've learned should have been called the Kansas flu epidemic. <laughs> But because it didn't come from Spain, all you Spanish people out there can rest assured it was not your fault, although you still get the name's not going to change. But if if you look at what we keep calling the second wave, they had a second wave and it was horrible. And would a second wave be one and a half times as the prediction will be one and a half or twice as bad? Or have you seen any numbers about that? Unfortunately, I have not seen any numbers of what they're predicting. I, the second wave, if you want to, um, is um, going to be more interesting in the sense that, unlike in, in, in 1980 at the time of the Spanish flu, we, we have at least an ability now to have more data where we didn't before. So if we are able to increase our testing as has as been proposed and trace better, if that comes to fruition, we shouldn't have as much um, of a second wave as maybe those in the healthcare field are thinking because we'll be able to lock, lock those individuals or those communities down more, more quickly and, and then, then prevent the spread. Um, but I have not seen the, the numbers to, as far as predictions so far. Um, you know, this whole idea of social distancing and um, delaying um, the surge was very important, but doesn't mean that that virus is not going to continue to spread out throughout the communities um, and throughout the world. The tracing, I, I listen to This Week in Virology just passionately. Every time I'm in my truck, I'm listening to the latest, greatest uh, episode of This Week in Virology. And Vincent Racaniello and the team there, I think, do an unbelievable job. They did an episode called Tetris. And they you, Tetris was a mnemonic they came up with for testing, tracing, and isolation. So they used Tetris for that. I thought it was fairly catchy, but... You know, we can't get people to wear masks when they're asymptomatic and probably even when they are symptomatic. I can't imagine how hard it's going to be to try to get people who are not the least bit sick to isolate and to stay home 
because they've been exposed to Harry at the meat market and Harry had the virus. I, I, just, I think that's going to be incredibly difficult, short of anything looking like martial law. It is. And I, and to that end, you know, because of social media and a lot of falsehoods being um, reported on social media, it's, it's going to be very difficult. And in the end, I hope that some sense of reason will out, outweigh or outlive um, some of the falsehoods that are, that are being presented so that, you know, some common sense, you know, um, will, 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 will be victorious because it is, is, is unfortunate, as you're saying, you know, it, it, we're all in this together. We, we all have to do our part and it's not convenient. It's not fun. It's not glorious, but uh, if we do, if we all do our part, we will not, we'll not only get through this, but we'll get through it safer than we would have otherwise. And the last thing I want to ask you about when it comes to masks is about, Dr. Fauci, Anthony Fauci, the head of NIAID, I think it is, Mm -hmm. uh, the Infectious Disease Institute. Did he come out and say we shouldn't be wearing masks? So um, there's some debate as whether or not he said it in that way. Um, The the thing with masks from the get-go was that people were thinking that it would protect them from the virus. In reality, the cloth masks or the surgical masks that are commonly commonly seen, not so much the N95 masks, but the other masks that we commonly seen are really there to protect others, not so much the individual wearing it. Um, and, and so um, in that sense, you know, masks aren't helpful to the person wearing it. Now, an N95 mask is different. You know, if you look at the N95 mask with the um, exhalation valve, that's different. Um, but you know, masks in general aren't there, aren't there to protect you so much as, as to protect others and the people around you. And, and while we're picking on people in Washington, D.C., the president talked ad nauseum, it seemed like, about hydroxychloroquine. Mm-hmm. You know, whether he was taking it or not, I don't know. I don't care. But help me get the point across to people that hydroxychloroquine is not the panacea for coronavirus. Yeah, absolutely not. There are, I mean, unfortunately, there are no treatments that are currently 100% for the coronavirus, whether you're asymptomatic, symptomatic, you know, in the ICU, et cetera. And it's really unfortunate. We still are in the process of trying to figure out what the best treatment, op- treatment options are. And I can tell you, Jim, I mean, even here in Forsyth County, we were doing everything, you know, from convalescent plasma, um, plasmapheresis, you know, all the interleukin-6 antagonists you hear about, even remdesivir, we're hearing about all those things and we're doing it all here. And, you know, the data is just, it's still too early to say what's really working. But specifically to the hydroxychloroquine, the answer is the more the more we go along uh, along this course, the more we see that hydroxychloroquine is definitely not a panacea. It's probably not helping. It's probably causing more, more problems than it is any benefit in folks. But remdesivir that you mentioned, Remdesivir is an antiviral drug, IV only, which is an obvious problem, that I understand works best if you give it early, but haven't there been some studies about remdesivir helping? So to your great, great question. So two points. One is initially a lot of folks weren't able to, a lot of folks meaning hospital systems um, weren't able to get remdesivir early on. And so we were using it very late. So folks that were intubated already having um, ARDS, which is a, a very bad respiratory uh, syndrome of the lungs. And so we were using it there. And some of the preliminary studies said that it probably shortened some of the ICU stay, but overall mortality didn't show any improvement. And so what we're seeing now is that we got to be able to get that very early on. 
For example, even the IL-6 antagonist, things, uh, things like tuxalizumab, for example, or sulimab, probably the earlier we use it to blunt the cytokine storm you hear about, the better it would be for the patients in the long run as far as treatment. So that's a great opportunity for me to ask you to explain to people what it is that really hurts you when you have this virus, that it's not really the virus that gets you, but the cytokine storm. Will you explain to them a little bit about what that is? Sure. So there's chemicals in the body called neuroleukins that release uh, inflammation for, for for lack of a better word. And that inflammation is the thing that causes the lung damage specifically that leads to people being on mechanical ventilators for long periods of time and then lead to um, uh, the the prolonged ventilatory stays, et cetera. And so what these medications do essentially blunt or stop that process from happening. And we've seen in patients where we give them a dose of this their markers, the inflammation markers that we check in their blood go down quickly. They seem to do better. Their fever curves go down. And then sometimes it goes up again and we have to use it again to do that. So, um, and it's interesting. And we talked about this before where it seems that some people won't get the cytokine storm, but others have a very severe form of it. Um, and that's why things like plasmapheresis kind of does the same thing. It pulls out those chemicals, those, those, those uh, interleukins out of the body that are producing the inflammation to help the body heal because it is an over response, if you will, of the immune system to the virus that's leading to all this. So then to the people that talk about vitamin D being so essential in this whole process, vitamin D is very important in the immune logic response and the immune system. But if you're giving, if you start giving people or if they start taking because they have access to them, which is why I think it's important to mention this. If they start taking more and more vitamin D, then would they not be more likely to have a worse cytokine storm, a better quote unquote immune response and therefore a worse outcome potentially? So there have been some reports of other vitamins, like vitamin, like you said, vitamin D, you know, use of vitamin C, minerals like zinc, even things like melatonin to see if it could help curb or prevent COVID-19 from becoming this huge cytokine storm. Um, and as you said, Jim, you know, we've known for years that vitamin D is immunomodulatory I don't know if there's any data to suggest it would worsen people's outcome by taking excess vitamin D, but certainly there's no data that says it'll help you. And so, you know, there's, there's a, definitely a chance there that if it could hurt to avoid, avoid excess usage. I'm going to move on to something a little bit different. Um, in our practice, we are seeing probably at least 10 and maybe as many some days as 20 patients who really are here for the sole purpose of getting the antibody test. They want to know if they're immune to this so that they can't get it again. And they come in asking for the antibody test. And I'd like them to hear from the expert about all the things that are wrong with that last sentence. I just said. Yeah. And again, it goes back to, we just don't know what the results mean. So if you're immunoglobulin G positive, essentially means your body has developed antibodies to this specific coronavirus. But we don't know yet if, if you have those antibodies, if they're protective, how long they're protective for. If the virus strain changes, does it mean that you're no longer protected? So being positive does not always guarantee that you're immune. And so I think it gives the people a false sense of security saying, oh, yes, I'm positive. I don't need to wear a mask. I don't need to practice social distancing. I think that's um, not, an, not an appropriate way to interpret uh, 
those uh, that positive test unfortunately that could change though i mean that could totally change you know and six months from now we may know that it's very much you know if you have a positive igg test then great you're immune and that's fantastic but right now we really can't say that but i think it's going to take that second wave coming for these people to be exposed again yes and see how many of them get sick i think that's pretty mm-hmm. obvious that's, and yes. you you said i think at least three times since we started talking we don't know or i don't know And I don't know about you, but I've never said that as many times in my entire career as I have since the beginning of February, probably. It's just, it's because we don't. And I think patients are so accustomed to us having the answers. You know, they come in here and they ask us all these questions, whatever they might be. And we have years and years and years of of experience and studies and research and, 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 and patient experience to tell them, oh, this is going to happen. It'll happen like this. And you can be assured you're pretty close to right. And with this, the answer so often is we just don't know. We're still learning. And like I said to you before we went on the air, you know, I'm learning every week that what I learned two weeks ago was wrong. And so it's it's been really crazy. And that brings up another thing about testing, which is in testing for the illness itself to see if someone is actively infected. When this started, we were doing this here at my office. We did it in a drive through fashion. We basically had sacrificial lambs, one medical assistant who would go out and triage the patient and do the test itself. And I had one done. And if you hadn't had it done, Manny, you need to have it done because it's a real experience. Uh, It's the itchiest thing you ever went through for about 18 seconds. And that's all. It's not the end of the world. But, man, I I itched for the rest of the day in my nose, Mm -hmm. I think. But then they came out and said that saliva was a really good source to test with. And five days later, they came out and said, well, saliva is not that great a source. So are we going to have a saliva test that's more easily tolerated and easy to do for this thing? So I was just looking um, today uh, because of that question. And there, there is apparently um, the FDA did, a, honestly, approve, but they approved through the Emergency Use Act um, a saliva test that would be more tolerable, certainly, uh, than the nasal pharyngeal or oral pharyngeal swab that's currently being used. I just don't know how readily available it is you know, to us. Apparently, they're they're saying that it might be available for home testing in that sense. Um, but I, because before I, you know, a couple of weeks ago, like like you're saying, a couple of weeks ago, I would have said there's no home test available. But it looks like this particular test uh, will be available at some point to be to use not just in offices like ours, but also at home. You know, be a saliva test. Well, I think that would be fantastic because, like you mentioned earlier, we're not doing enough testing. We don't have enough testing. If we could get people to do that, they may actually be able to get the testing done that they need to really find out the details about what's going on with this thing. I want to take a minute and remind everybody that this podcast is brought to you by Mara Family Medicine. We're very proud to be one of the first practices in the area to offer that drive-through testing for coronavirus, and we've tried to be on top of this the entire time. We're also one of the first to offer telemedicine visits for both sick and well patients, and we're still doing that. So, In our practice, we are bringing people into the office and we're also doing telemedicine visits either for sick people or in the case where you just don't feel comfortable coming into the office, we can still take care of you for the most part by using telemedicine. We're doing all of this so that we can continue to bring the care back to healthcare while protecting our staff as best we can and also providing the best quality care we can for our patients. And we really appreciate not only you letting us be your physicians, but also the fact that you would take the time to listen to our podcast. So Manny, back to the subject at hand, 
mutations. Every RNA virus that I've ever learned anything about mutates, but a lot of people are under the impression that that has a bad connotation. So walk me through what mutations mean and don't mean in the case of coronavirus. Sure. And just like you were saying, Jim, with any virus or any, you know, any living organism, the more copies you make, the potential for some increased survivability occurs and some detriment, detriment can occur too. And so eventually, just like with the influenza virus, we will start seeing some probably mutations of the virus, but how clinically significant it is, is what, you know, is yet to be seen. You know, one of the things um, that you bring up with regards to that, you know, there was a article that came out a while back, well, not a while back, just just recently about the possibility of a second strain of coronavirus. Um, and that was, that was more transmissible than the previous one. The, the article was out of the Los Alamos National Laboratory, and it probably was sort of overblown when it came to um, their findings, um, simply because um, they the, we don't really know if just because it's more transmissible, is it more virus that's more transmissible? You know, is it, is it, does it live longer on the surfaces? We don't know any of that. Um, but yes, I mean, any any of the viruses that we've had, just like bacteria, just like just like us as humans, you know, we, as we as we make more copies of cells, um, more DNA, et cetera, there is a chance for good and bad, um, both. And just as a reminder to people, in case you hadn't listened to previous podcasts, the way this virus works is it gets into your lungs and it injects its DNA into your cell, and it's your body that produces the virus. The virus is reproduced in your cell. The virus itself is really not even alive. It's just an envelope with DNA inside it. And this DNA gets in and then it expels this virus from the cell. And it's a, it's a, a brutal pr- process to watch. If you ever had a chance with an electron microscope to see these things happening, it's absolutely crazy. But Manny, when it comes to this particular virus, how do we know it wasn't man-made? Um, so I've heard, you know, this, this idea that perhaps, um, it was first created a, a viral lab and then, you know, was released. Um, the answer, you know, the, the short answer is we, we don't know. Um, we, we, would hope, we would hope that, you know, scientists and, you know, physicians, you know, uh, people in general would not want something like this to happen. Um, and that and it, it was an, un, an unfortunate act, act of nature as opposed to a man-made virus. Um, there are some folks who are trying to do some tracing, um, fancy, you know, genetic tracing of this virus. And most reports have said it is, is unlikely to be, you know, but there are those um, conspiracy theorists out there that do believe that it is, was a man-made. I'm, I don't think we'll ever have a definitive answer one way or the other. Um, I think what we take out of that is that we're, it's here. Uh, we're stuck with it and we got we, we to do our job and get rid of it. Is there anything you can think of that would have prevented this pandemic and we could have done better and differently to keep from being in the position where we are today? So um, I think regardless of our political background, I think some of the things we could have done better would have been really to have a stronger and more robust public health system with with better international cooperation among other countries so that we had accurate information. Um, I think those things can potentially help us. I think having a better trust um, in the scientists and the doctors that are giving us information would be helpful. You know, to your point at the beginning of the podcast with the masks, you know, 
you know, just like wearing a seatbelt in your car might not, may not help you 100% of the time, and we do it because of the right thing, and, and it's, you know, the law, really. Um, you know, we've we got to use some, some, some common sense. Um, but I think having a, a more robust healthcare system in general um, that really does a good job of taking care of its people is, 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 would be better. I mean, we're one of the richest countries in the world. And, and unfortunately, despite the fact we spend so much money on healthcare, there's still a lot of folks who, who are, are in need of, of better care and, you know, better primary care, certainly, above all else. That's very true. Now, one of the podcasts that I listened to said that um, there was talk about a vaccine for coronaviruses in general, not just the specific SARS-CoV-2 that causes COVID-19, but for multiple coronaviruses. Is that something you anticipate would be able to be done at all, ever? So um, I'm not familiar with that particular um, report. I know there are currently four, now five, human coronaviruses. It really depends on how quickly the virus, as we talked about, kind of mutates. One of the issues with the, the flu virus and why we can't have a universal flu vaccine is because it just changes so quickly. Um, hopefully this particular one won't, and we will have at least a vaccine. Um, but I, 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 I don't know. I can't, I can't answer that question as, as far as if it's if we can do it for all, all the coronaviruses. I'm not sure. And what's your gut feeling about a vaccine as far as a timetable? I've heard so many different things as far as timetables, and I've read so many things. I'm thinking, unfortunately, that in reality, it'll be the first part of 2021 that we actually see a, a vaccine to market. But I've heard things as early as October, you know, and um, and early, uh, and sorry, late fall. Um, but I'm thinking it'd probably be winter be, before we actually see a vaccine once the trials are done. And I think the important thing is making sure that we have at least decent safety data to say that, yes, it's safe. Um, we know vaccine is 100% effective. Um, as an infectious disease doctor, I am a huge proponent of vaccines. Um, you know, I want to prevent people from getting sick. Um, but to, for me to say that it's 100, any vaccine is 100% effective, it's not. But the more people that get it, the less likely everybody else, everybody else is to get sick and the better it is you know, for the population at large. Well, the first quarter of 2021 would be a solid year earlier than I've been thinking. So that would tickle me to death. I'd be thrilled if that was the, the case. And as we sit here, end of May 2020, we've got summer right upon us. Summer to me means that you're three months closer to a football season. And when I think about football season, it brings you to schools. What's your anticipation about kids in Forsyth County being in school and, and being able to actually be in person in class this year? I know a lot of the school systems um, are in the process of having those very difficult talks, um, especially with the football season and getting back to weight training. Um, I think there's going to be a lot of changes that are going to have to be in effect to keep everybody safe. Uh, going back to the beginning about mitigation, we're going to have to understand that we can't make it no risk, but hopefully reduce the risk. Um, I mean, I've, I've seen and talked to friends, family, colleagues that have, been struggling a lot um, through this homeschooling, you know, both parents working, you know, struggling to get care, health, you know, not health care, um, struggling to get care for their kids while they're, while they're working. Uh, we have, we've got to figure out a way to balance all these things out and understand that we're, we're all doing our best to keep our, especially our kids safe um, while continuing to produce as, as people. And I do hope that we're able to open up the schools in the fall as long as we, we keep 
but it, I think it goes back to the, what we're saying before the beginning, you know, being smart now, you know, be, being, taking care of ourselves, wearing masks, you know, doing the social distancing thing, you know, and this weekend on the news, you saw plenty of pictures in certain beachfront areas with crowds and crowds of people just yeah. not wearing masks and just, I think, I think it's silly. And I think it's, it's, it's really difficult for us to, to for me to see that because I, I know that those people aren't seeing the folks that we're seeing in the hospital, you know, on death's door from this virus. They, they, they don't see it. And then and it, it's, it is scary. Um, but we got, we'll got to do our part to keep safe. I know my granddaughter is graduating from high school. I know that's hard to believe looking at me, but my granddaughter is graduating from high school in Greenville, South Carolina. And I want to say congratulations, Anna Leguizamo. I'm so very proud of you. And they are going to have an in-person graduation in a week. They're, they're going to social distance the kids. They're limiting the guests to two people per student, which has got my wife and myself both in a little bit of a tizzy because we're not going to be able to be there. But, you know, they're going to actually walk across the stage and pick up a, a diploma. They'll have masks on the entire time, except for while they're walking across the stage. Um, and it's going to be something close to what they had anticipated for the last 12 years. And I'm very excited about that. I know here in Forsyth, they're planning to do that late in July. Um, but I'm just glad that they're, they're doing that because I think it's something that they've already missed out on so much that I, I think it's something that they will be very glad that they were able to do. And Manny, I want to thank you so much for being with us for this time. I know you've got a lot going on. I know it's not an easy thing for you to steal 30 and 45 minutes, but I really do appreciate it very much. Um, I want to remind everyone that our podcast can be found at toyourhealthradio.com or on the Morrow Family Med Medicine website at morrowfammed.com. And please remember, if you're listening, please remember to subscribe to the podcast so you can be notified whenever we do have new episodes, which is the second and fourth Wednesday of each month. I can be found on Twitter. I'm at ToYourHealthMD. I would encourage you if you have comments or epi uh, episode ideas, ideas of things we can talk about in the future. I'd love that. Our music, which I love, is by my friend Steve Watson. I want to thank Steve for allowing us to reuse to use his original music. Our production is by Mr. John Ray with North Fulton Business Radio X in Alpharetta, Georgia. John, it is always a pleasure. And uh, so please stay safe. And until next time, here's to your health.